0: This podcast is created by the Center for Rehabilitation Outcomes Research at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, with support from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. At the Center for Rehabilitation Outcomes Research, we are dedicated to excellence in health services research on outcomes for people with disabilities, their care partners, clinicians, policymakers, and other stakeholders. You can learn more about our center and stay up to date on our projects by visiting our website in the description, liking our Facebook page at Rehab Outcomes, or signing up for our newsletter. Hello everyone. My name is Lindsay Dubois, and I'll be your host today. We are so excited to share this episode with you So let's get right into it. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Tanya Richmond, who is also co-hosting the podcast with us. Tanya is a licensed clinical social worker, certified person-centered thinking trainer, and plan facilitator. And she's a partner with Support Development Associates, or SDA. SDA and Tanya work with organizations who deliver home and community-based services to help to transform their practices and systems into more person-centered ones. Sounds simple, right? Well, as we will talk about more in this podcast, it's much harder than it sounds. You'll hear from Tanya who will speak on why it is so important for providers to be trained in person-centered planning. And you'll hear from Kenny and Heather Latoura and Tanya will introduce them later so tanya could you start by explaining to our audience what do you mean by person-centered practices
1: yes of course thank you Uh, person-centered practices are value-based they're a set of skills and they're designed to give people who provide supports and services um, the skills they need to generate to explore to offer options and choices to people and it's a way for people who are in support roles to have the skills they need to first understand what's important to a person so kind of what sits at the core of the person in their heart um, and then explore the choices that connect to those things that are important to that person Um, so the the things they desire for themselves and they prefer Um, while taking into account those things that are important for the person in terms of their health
0: and their safety. All right, so other than those obvious reasons you just mentioned, why should providers practice person-centered skills?
1: Well, because it's not only the right thing to do; it's the law. Um, the Home and Community-Based Services, or what we say, the HCBS Final Rule of 2014, uh, specifically requires person-centered planning uh, with people who are who are receiving HCBS services. Um, and many of those services are they're in the community. There, it's a range of things, everything you can possibly imagine. Uh, so the skills and the practices then are the mechanisms that we would would ask people to use when they're determined determining the desire for or the type of the or or the amount of services that someone's Uh, receiving, and also who provides them. So people have choice about that. And the big change for us to talk about today um, is a change that's directly connected to home and community-based services uh, final rule. And it's because providers are now required to include people in the planning process for services and supports and use a person-centered framework. And that's a structured framework that allows the person to guide the process. And at the same time, the provider is learning about the desires and the preferences of the person in balance with their health and safety needs. Because historically what's happened is the system and the people who provide services and supports have been the deciders in people's lives. So plans have been more system centric or focused on the capacity of, um, or the convenience of, or the ease of service provision. And they focused on what keeps people healthy and safe. But when we only focus on health and safety, we find that people are perfectly healthy, they're perfectly safe, and they might also be perfectly miserable. Um, But because of the expectations in the HCBS final rule, people and the people who are closest to them are now making their own decisions about their lives. Um, We want a system where people are supported in living the lives they want in their own communities, but we are living in a time, we're living in an era where the demand is increasing and public resources really can't keep up with that demand. And that means that if we're in a provision role, a service provision role, we have to change how we think about, how we organize, how we deliver services and the person needs to be the final decider whenever possible. Um, So if we're going to have real substantive change, not just a flash in the pan, um, and and the kind of change that not only meets federal and state expectations, but also improves the lives of people who use services and supports, um, and helps people who manage the organization use their limited resources more effectively, And also helps people who manage the system learn how the changes that they've made are working. We need skills to be able to do that. And our person-centered skills can help us do that.
0: So when we initially talked about doing a podcast around person-centered services and, and what that looks like in practice, you immediately thought of Kenny and Heather. There was no hesitation. So can you tell our listeners about Kenny and Heather and why you thought they would be the right guests to interview.
1: Yeah, you know, I met I met them about eight years ago or so. Um, I was in Connecticut. I was training some person-centered thinking trainers, some of whom came from an organization called Marrakesh. And Marrakesh is the organization that uh, serves Kenny. Uh, and Kenny's been with them for a very long time. Kenny actually came with those trainers who were learning, the, with the people who were learning to be trainers. And he was telling stories about his life. And we incorporated that into the training process. Um, and it was through Kenny that I actually met Heather. Uh, Heather Latoura came to Marrakesh many years ago and she actually provided services. She was a direct support provider, we call a DSP, um, earlier in her life and she has worked her way up through the organization and is now the CEO. Um, but Kenny Giannotti just really impressed me with the stories about his life during that training process and really the other thing that really impressed me was how the organization had flexed to support Kenny uh, through the years. Now, Kenny is, is fairly outspoken. He can tell us what he wants, um, and he is not afraid to do it. And I think many of his stories will, will highlight that for us. Um, but I was really impressed with the links to which Marrakesh had gone to identify what was important to Kenny and to help him have that at the same time that they were helping him be healthy and safe and helping their organization meet all the, the mandates that they have to meet. Um, So they provide services and supports to Kenny, but in addition to that, they really got to know Kenny and build trust with him.
0: I love that. I'm really excited to hear what Kenny and Heather had to say in your interview. So can you tell us a little bit about what to expect and what we're going to hear?
1: Yeah. So you're going to hear Kenny talk a little bit about his own life, a little bit about his background, um, things like how he met his wife. Uh, He's going to talk to you about his job and his experiences receiving services at Marrakesh. And I think he's really the perfect example of what it means to have some choice and control over various aspects of your life and, um, and really how his services have changed over time to support his choices in a way that makes his life much more meaningful and really represents a balance in Kenny's life between those things that are important to him and those things that are important for him to be healthy and safe.
0: That's amazing. Let's get right into it.
1: Kenny, I think we've known each other now for seven years, and I think we've spoken almost every day in that seven-year Time frame <laughs> yeah you have really you 've become someone who I truly trust, and I always look to you for support and advice when things are going on in my own life and um, I, what impressed me most about you was the way you told stories about your life that really people help people understand what the possibilities are when people have the kind of support that is the right fit for them and I have been just so impressed with your humor, with your kindness, with your wisdom over the years. Um, And I really have come to look to you for kind of all the good wisdom that I can find, um, not just in my own life, but truly when I think about helping people who are receiving supports and services. So I'm so thankful that you can be here today. And Heather, delighted that you also could join us because I know you have known Kenny a very, very long time. So Heather, would you... Would you just introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about Marrakesh? And then, Kenny, I'm going to ask you a few questions so that people can get to know you, too. Uh,
2: so my name is Heather LaTora, and um, I started here at Marrakesh when I was very young, um, about 30, yeah, 36 years ago. I came to Marrakesh because I was set out to be a special education teacher and I wanted to know where people that have disabilities and other barriers might live and work after school. So I wanted to be the best special Mm -hmm. education teacher ever, and so I wanted to know what options there were out there. And this is way before there were Ubers and cell phones and everything, so I opened up the Yellow Pages. I was at Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven, and I opened up the Yellow Pages and I found Marrakesh. I called them, I said, could I come do my internship there? And they're like, yep, yeah, come, come to Marrakesh. So I, um, as a almost special education teacher, I started um, my internship at Marrakesh and I fell in love and that's where I am <laughs> 35 years later. And now I'm here and I took a many different positions here. And about seven years ago when I was meeting you was when I tr- was transitioning over to president and
1: CEO. I've just been been so impressed with the services at Marrakesh. And you know, when when we talk about person-centered practices, it truly is about building communities where people who maybe have disabilities or the presence of a disability are surrounded by um, really strong, meaningful relationships in their communities as much as possible and having control over their resources um, and having the people in their lives who support them to have more of that control, have that positive control over things. That was one of the things that really impressed me about um, Marrakesh. And, and through meeting Kenny, through talking with Kenny about his experiences, I know it wasn't always easy, right? You, I mean, you didn't just kind of come into the world. Um, you may have had a person-centered um, uh, way about you, I think, when you approached services because you were very young. You were like 17, right, when you first started with Marrakesh. Uh, And Kenny was a teenager and probably no one was using the term person-centered very much back in the days, as you were saying. Um, But when I think about what I've learned from Kenny, um, that's why I really wanted to have an opportunity to talk about um, his experiences today. And Kenny... The stories you've told me over the years have really kind of helped me understand how important it is for everybody uh, to hear stories like you. And um, like I said, we've talked almost every day for seven years, I can't believe it's been that long. Um, and I just kind of want you to tell everyone about yourself, like where do you live, who do you live with, tell me about what you do, all of those things so that people can get to get to understand your life, where it is right now.
3: East Haven, Connecticut. You're in New Haven,
1: Connecticut? No, East Haven. Oh, East Haven, yes. So who do you live with? My wife. Your wife, who I also know. <laughs> <laughs> Carla, where'd you meet Carla?
3: Through a friend of, my, of ours.
1: Through a, fr- a mutual friend?
3: Don't tell me you want to know the whole, whole, de- um, whole details about it. I was like, a long time ago, It was Carla one of Carla's friends. And they had a birthday party for her. She goes over there. My friend goes and says, oh, what are you doing tonight? I said, nothing. All right, come to my friend's house for a birthday party. I said, all right, but some girl punches me in the nose because I was looking at her and stuff. And (laughs) I had a bloody nose. I run to the bathroom. And then Carl runs to the bathroom. Are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm all right. And then she said, damn, who is this kid? He's cute. <laughs> and then after that, the next day and stuff, she goes and says, you got something to say to me? She said, how would you like to go out with me and stuff? And then she says, okay. Then we went for a date and stuff. We went to Anthony's in on um, Guilford.
1: How long ago was that? How long ago did this all happen?
3: Let's see, we got married in 2000. It was like 1990-something. And then when we got engaged, that was on Halloween, the 2000, no, 19, 1999 Halloween. A friend of mine gave me two tickets for a wrestling match and stuff. We went there for an engagement party by ourselves.
1: You're a big fan of wrestling, I know. <laughs> That's the one thing you and I never see eye to eye on, right? Or one one of the many things you and I never see eye to eye on. <laughs>
2: that was actually the first thing he taught me about Tanya with person-centered thinking. He, uh, when I met Kenny, I was, Marrakesh was always progressive. So I know that there were, you know, six bed group homes were very common in the world and five bed group homes. So we were like, no, it's, horrible to live with five other people oh, even yes. everyone you choose to live with it's hard mm-hmm. but that's what they were giving out at that time like community living arrangements for five or six people so what we did we thought we were so smart we were going to trick them so we rented three apartments in a building so even though it was a, a five bed home it was really someone had their own apartment and then two people shared an apartment and two people shared an apartment so they had their space and they got to choose who they were with so kenny moves in He's my age. I'm young as, you know, he's a little, a <laughs> couple months older than me. And um, he comes in, and behind him is tons of, like, rolled up posters. And they were yeah. The Undertaker, which I never heard of. Oh my and God. then <laughs> girls in bathing suits and, you know, all these different types That's
3: of... That's men, for young men and stuff.
2: Yeah, yes. What a typical young man might hang up in their room and so it was my first experience where my co-workers were like I don't want to look at those posters I don't wanna you know I don't want that he shouldn't have that in his room and it caused me to think about it and talk to Kenny about it and Kenny said it's my room I'm like yeah you're right it is your room so we came up with a vision statement so all new hires and all of our current employees knew that this is their homes this is Kenny's home and it's decorated by Kenny So if something might offend you or something that you don't want to deal with or something that that you don't like, you could work in a different place. But it's not here because the people that we support can furnish their home in any way that they like. So um, that was like one of our first things that we had to do formally meeting Kenny so people knew um, what the mindset was of Marrakesh and that we support people who have their own decisions on what their home looks. like.
1: So for you, that was really kind of the beginning of. I remember you telling telling me that it wasn't called person-centered; it was called Kenny's life, and that was kind of the only life that <laughs> there was. And that's how supports were provided. It was Kenny's life, um, and I think that's. You've told me that you've learned so much about person-centered supports from Kenny. Um, I know, Kenny, one of the things I was reflecting on as you were talking about Carla and your your relationship with your wife, you know, the first thing that you mentioned was that she came to take care of you when you had a bloody nose. I didn't know the other part of that story, but it sounds exactly like Carla to be that caretaker in your life, and I know you to be a good caretaker for her as well, and I know when I was getting married myself, you gave me advice about um, my my marriage, which is not very old at this point, and um, I just have always really appreciated your your orientation to your family and the people in your life that you love. And I'm curious about how life is going for you right now, just in general, how are things going? Don't think about COVID. I know you and I've had many discussions about how that has wrecked everything.
3: (laughs) Almost everything is good, but I I want to get the heck out of Stop and Shop. I wanna leave that. So your current
1: job, you've been there a really long time.
3: 34 years going on 35.
1: 35 years yeah and Carla's there too right you both work
3: she's gonna be there at 21 and I'll be there whenever
1: yeah so what do you do there first stop and shop uh, I push carriages
3: or I um, the porter
1: the porter okay so has that changed any over the years is that what you've been doing all along or
3: no they changed because I, they said that I called out too many times I think it's so stupid.
2: When they started, they had the robots there? Yes. And you were so, that was, I think that was the beginning of the downfall of,
3: of his.
1: So what kind of robots? Are these like self-checkout robots or? No.
3: They, they walk around, they like roll around the whole entire store and call up when there's a, a You have to clean up something. So if there's a
2: spill, so like Kenny's job, if there was a spill, if there was something, yep. you know. The robot can now clean it up. And when he ever met that robot, was about uh, to you called me down. Friday night in hysterics, <laughs> saying, "I am getting out of here. They're hiring a robot to replace yeah. me. They're going to change my hours now because then they started playing with his hours, and he was not not thrilled with that." Nope.
1: Yeah. So, are you thinking about other things you might like to do? Oh yeah. What's on your mind about that? What do you want to do?
3: Well, I'm a minister.
1: You're a youth minister?
3: No, Eucharistic minister. That I give up.
1: Oh, a Eucharistic.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I remember talking with you during the pandemic about um, you missing that because when you couldn't get together in person.
3: Oh yes. Yeah, but
1: are you, so you're back now gathering in the church?
3: Yeah, kind of, but it's like, I haven't been there for about a week cause I have on um, vacation, but I don't go back until the 13th of June.
1: Okay, so you have some opportunities to meet with, meet with people again. And I know that's been really meaningful for you, that, that your um, connection to your church has given you a lot of purpose and meaning. We've had a lot of conversation with that over the years. Yeah, so what are your opportunities for getting into the ministry?
3: let if I do, I have to go to seminary school for it. First, try to go and check out some schools.
1: So have you begun to look at ones you might check out or just think about it in the thinking about it phase. I
3: want to go to the Divinity School, that's in Yale. I heard it costs a lot of money.
1: I would imagine. It's pretty close to where you are too, isn't it? Yeah. So are there folks there who are kind of helping you think about what your options might be? I think this lady named Mary Smith.
2: Kenny called me during COVID and you were not happy with the person that was supporting you at the time. You're like, I don't want him back. Oh,
3: yeah, I don't my have counselor. to say his
2: name cuz we're on a podcast. But you didn't <laughs> want him back and you know, from that day, that was it. Yeah. Because people choose their own support people here. And we were having a hard time cuz Kenny put out to the world that he wanted a man to help support him and someone he could trust. And so every every single thing that Kenny wanted out of a support Staff, um, I found except that Mary's a woman, mm. and I said, "Do you want to try?" And uh, yeah. you said yes, and she's like, "Absolutely!" And uh, we were very happy that mm. that worked out. So um, that's another thing about Marrakesh is the people that we support choose their own support staff because that's how you're successful in life. If you are every day opening your door and the person coming in is not someone that you trust or you believe in, or believe in you, or have the choices, then it's not going to work out. So we just know that Kenny's world is easier, so person-centered sports is an easier way to provide sports because it's through the choices of the person.
1: It's interesting to me, too. I mean, you're 35 years into your job at at uh, where you're working now and um, thinking about a career change, and I think that's always... Um, For many of us I think you know you've been in a a career for a while and you start to think have I learned everything I can learn here have I done everything I want to do Um, so I don't think it's that different um, that you are looking at a career change Um, but I love that you have someone who's talking that through with you and what some of the possibilities may be Uh, because I think what happens often and I don't know if you've experienced this Heather or Kenny but Sometimes what happens in the field of disabilities in particular when people are thinking about working is you get one job one time and you don't get to try other things. And um, Kenny has sort of run the range of jobs that are existed, I think at that shop and, at stop and shop. so um, you know looking at something else is, is perfectly uh, a good thing, but in addition to that, he has a lot of support for doing that, which I'm happy to hear. so I'll be curious to see how that turns out, Kenny. <laughs> So, you know, here's kind of what's on my mind. We've talked about sort of person-centered practices in a, in a very um, vague sense, but not really about what it means to support someone um, through the use of person-centered practices. Um, and so I know over the time that I've known Kenny, I've heard many stories about often you, Heather, sometimes you were the person that was um, a part of the story. I've heard about swimming assessments and fire drills and cooking assessments and, i want to hear about the fire drill i think
2: he actually taught the state of connecticut how to um waver things so he could still live in a home where he could have supports but not follow all ridiculous rules that he could write the the book for
1: (laughs) (laughs) so so tell me about the fire drill since you were a part of that story the two of you tell us so
2: part of the regulations in Connecticut is that if you do live in a licensed home, which this home was licensed, you have to run a monthly fire drill, and everybody from the home has to have a meeting place that's visible, and everyone has to meet at the meeting place. Um, and we picked the place as right in front of the building but to the side so a fire engine can still get into the parking lot. So we lot had our phony you know (laughs) sirens and the people in all three apartments uh you know knew that it was a fire drill and everybody came out and they're standing at the meeting space except for ken kenny decided forget about it forget about it and (laughs) that's what he told us and i'm like kenny we have to send this paperwork to the state and if we don't you know, evacuate in a, I forget, there's like slow, medium, whatever. He, if you evacuate slow, you can't be, you're going to have to go to a more supported living place, which you'd hate. He's like, figure it out. I'm not standing there. <laughs> Do you know what I, he said, Heather, come look out the window. So I look out the window and we're on the second floor. We're looking out the window at the front and his roommates, his, the other people we that he lived with in the building we're outside at the meeting space with their support staff. And no one else in the building is evacuated, but some of them are looking out the window too. And Kenny's, <laughs> like, Kenny's like, do you know what I look like, Heather? Do you know what I look like standing there? <laughs> uh, and I won't repeat it, but I knew what he meant. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I was terrified because I didn't want him to get disqualified from living there. I didn't want him to move backwards. And he didn't want to move backwards, and he just, you know, trusted me enough to say, figure it out, but I'm not doing this. I'm not. And so in a typical world, what I learned before is you write a big R for refusal, because that's what you do when someone doesn't do something you want them to do. It's called a refusal. And, um, you know, he'd probably have a behavior program because he'd refuse but instead I called, and, it, and Connecticut was very progressive, and we had this wonderful man in charge of licensing named Dan McCurry, and I called him and I said, this is the story. Kenny, you know, told Kenny's story, he's not going outside, and I don't blame him. You know, if I, I, when he explained it to me, I got it. And Dan's like, let me get back to you. And the state of Connecticut came up with the evacuation waiver for people who did live in apartment buildings and didn't want to, you know, wanted to fit in with everyone and just and knew right. what to do. So what we'd have to do is every quarter just at, kind of do a verbal test and document this. it, so he didn't have to um, have to do it. And then what happened months ago, months after that, was there was a fire in the building, and guess who was out first. <laughs>
1: Yep. I have no doubt. Yeah. And you know what? It, I mean, it absolutely is um, true that the obstacles often are our regulations, right? The constraints are part of the rules. And those are important, too, because they do keep people healthy and safe. And that is why we are in the world. Um, but I love that you're able to push back on that, Kenny, in a way that just kind of helps people understand what your experience is. Um, because standing in the parking lot when no one else is out there, you know, when someone's waving a fake fire alarm, making a fake fire alarm sound um, you know you don't want to be called out that way and none of us would want that for ourselves so I think it's great that you have always had a way to help people understand why this matters Um, and that is one of the things that has really drawn me to you over the years is the way you tell those stories
3: to me I think the state of Connecticut was scared of me that of me that's why (laughs) they say yo it's Kenny's world whatever Kenny wants he gets
1: (laughs) well and do you think that's always true do you think you always get everything you want oh, yes <laughs> I would I would bet Heather has different impressions about that you know it's it says a lot to me that Kenny you feel like you get everything you want and it, it truly means that people are listening to you and hearing it from your perspective that's sort of how I hear this and, um, that to me is is everything because for all of us in life I, mean, I certainly don't have everything I want you know, all the time. It's not always my way, but I appreciate it when people hear my perspective about what I want, um, and that I have people I can talk to about that, and and that it matters to them what I want. Like so me, I think, yeah, like you. <laughs> Absolutely, you're always one of my first calls, to be honest.
2: <laughs> How about when you were to get in the van? Thought- oh
3: my God! How do I tell you this? <laughs> Especially when at school, they had the same thing.
2: He. Kenny, did, who could blame him? Kenny hated the vans that if he was being picked up from somewhere, when it backs up, it goes beep,
3: beep, oh my beep, God. beep,
2: And the whole, everyone could P-R-A, hear you. What the heck? And I guess he already hated it from the school he went to before he came to Marrakesh. So he already had a very adverse reaction to those loud beeping vans. Oh my God, and, <laughs> maybe a headache. <laughs> and he was at Stop and Shop already working. And one of the um, job coaches or someone tried to pick you up in the van, and you know when, it, and and instead they called us and said Kenny won't get in the van. He won't leave work. He won't get in the van. So I'm like. Well, there's got to be a reason, because Kenny just doesn't do things to do them. There's got to be a reason. And when asked why, Kenny's like, did you hear that van? The whole store hears a van. No one else gets picked up from a van that goes, beep, 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 <laughs> beep. No one else. So you know what I look like, Heather. The like, yeah, cool. I know what I mean. <laughs> So, well, what's the solution? I don't know. What's the solution? I could take the bus like everyone else. Wait. Ooh. Really? Uh, You know, in those days, thirty-five years ago, people with developmental disabilities basically had twenty-four-seven staffing. Right. Um, So this was all new, all new to uh, to teach Kenny how to use the bus and then let him come home on his own. And of course, that was a big risk at the day in those days, and still is always a risk. Um, But um, so that was interesting. But he just told us what he wanted to do. He wanted to take the bus like everyone
1: else from Stop and Shop, and
2: that's what we did. Mm.
1: Figured it out. I suspect you probably already knew how to use the bus, knowing you. You probably had done it already. <laughs> he probably taught
2: the person who was supporting him how to use the bus, honestly.
3: <laughs> oh,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> and um, the the last straw of that program, which we thought was very innovative, considering it was, he had his own apartment, but um, you know, we had overnight staff. We had overnight people that came in, Dawn and Diane, yep. right? Those two. And so they'd come in at 10 <laughs> p.m. and stay overnight in one of the apartments. So God forbid something happened, everyone would be safe. Hmm. And one day... <laughs> no, I love this. <laughs> You're going to love this. Kenny's like, nah, I don't think, I don't think I'm going to let them in my apartment today. That's not happening. Dawn, you should be with your husband. You know, tonight you should be there with him. You shouldn't be here watching me. I know what to do in case of an emergency, and uh, literally didn't let her in his apartment. So of <laughs> course I get the call, and he explains that no, I don't. I don't need overnight stuff. That's really ridiculous. <laughs> and you know, when he said it like that, he was right. He really didn't need but again in those days people had 24 7 support so what are we going to do about that i called my friend dan at, at uh, the department of developmental services the licensing guy and i'm like what can we do about this and so they did write a waiver for overnights and then eventually kenny just had to find his own place to live so and uh we kenny developed individualized supports Mm -hmm. he developed them that was it he's like i'm gonna live in my own apartment and i'm gonna tell you when i need help and so because of kenny marrakesh swayed where most people at marrakesh were 24 7 supported 24 7 and now this day most people here are supported less than 24 7 and um because we really look at people's needs and wants and desires and try to put things in place where people can be safe but also living the life that they choose all because of kenny
1: (laughs) that's pretty impressive and you know what i hear most is this this relationship of trust like you have really developed in a lot of ways you grew up with one another you were very young when you met anyway right but you have this trust for one another, I think that you've developed over many years and Heather, a unique ability to really listen to Kenny who knows best about his life um, and trust that he knows best about his life. And I'm curious, um, this is kind of more a question for Heather, but Kenny he jump in if, if you want to. What do you consider to be the essence of person-centered care? You've mentioned many, many things, but what do you think the essence of it is? How, why does this work?
2: Um, I think a lot, there's a many different facets of this that make it work besides choice. Like just, I always picture the opposite. Imagine waking up and not having a choice. Imagine not having what you want for breakfast. Imagine someone telling you, you have to eat breakfast, even if you're not hungry, (laughs) but the dietitian says you have to. And if you don't, it might be a neglect phone call or whatever, or, you know, I want to spend my money on this pet instead of money on this save up for something else. So it's just like, choice obviously is so important respect is so important and that fighting with someone's just ridiculous like telling someone you know better when you don't know so to me everything is important when it's a compromise and it's uh working together and i don't ever have to put my foot down and say this is it and who wants to live like that? I don't think I'd be here 35 years if I was telling people how they were going to live their lives because that wouldn't be fun, and it wouldn't work. You're not having confrontations and telling people how they should live their life.
1: So um, I kind of have just a couple more questions. Um, kidding, I think this one may be uh, in thinking about how we could wrap this up. When you think about what you've accomplished in your life and and the things that Heather has said about what you did for the state of Connecticut and other people who have disabilities and what their experiences are, what are the things that you're most proud of?
3: Everything. I think everything, my goals are golden. It's like I tell people how it is and they say, you know what, you're telling the truth. Because almost, my whole life, I had I was picked on when I was a kid, and everybody who picked on me, one day apologized and said to me, I'm sorry for being rude to you. I says that's good.
1: You've certainly shown a lot of people what's possible, I think. And it's hard, not, it's hard not to respect what you've accomplished. And I think when people hear about your story, it has a way of just kind of helping them not only understand what your experiences are, but where they may be wrong in their thinking about people with disabilities.
2: Absolutely. And at Mar- Marrakesh here, every time someone does something that's very um, choice and risk and everything, I always thank Kenny. I'm always thinking, if it wasn't for Kenny, I don't know if I'd have the stomach for this. We had um, two people that we supported had a baby three years ago, and they're supporting a baby. And we were terrified. We are like, oh, yeah. no, what are we going to do? And they're great parents. And he's running around and singing, and he's wonderful. And we have had other people get married since Kenny broke the mold. And we just had people you know, go on vacation or, or do things that maybe um, in other other programs wouldn't be able to, or you know, some some uh, agencies don't want to support anything that might be risky. And um, to us, life is risky, and and we have to weigh out everything and, and make sure that people are living the lives they choose, or else they're not going to be
1: happy. So agree. So Kenny, any last words? Anything you want to add about?
3: oh there's one thing another story you're gonna love this one time ago when we went to camp practice they're telling me that I had to go for a swimming assessment and they went over call my counselor up and they said Even if he refused to do a swimming assessment and they said uh remember one thing the kid was in the what uh, was the military gun um, things school he' hes how to swim and then they, they said, okay, no problem. They they uh, wavered it.
1: You've been really such a good advocate for yourself, but that's meant the difference for so many people's lives. I'm trying I to change our it.
3: lives. That's what I'm trying to do.
1: I think you have changed lives. You've changed my life for sure.
3: And Heather's. But there's one thing. Heather and I, ever since I came to Miracash. Her and I are like brother and sister and stuff, we have a bond that will not break.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. I say it all the time, everybody should have a friend like you. For me? We all need a friend like you. That's not bad, that's cool. Maybe I don't say it to you enough, but I do believe that. Yeah.
0: Well, Tanya, I can understand why you immediately thought of Kenny when we talked about doing a podcast on person-centered practices. You know, Kenny's life and the things he shared with you touch on so many critical aspects of what it means to be person-centered and all of the challenges that can arise from that. I want to take a few minutes with you to just reflect on some of the themes we heard Kenny address. The first and often one of the most important in conversations about home and community-based services is the big one, choice and control. And more specifically, I think respecting Kenny's choices and letting him decide how his staff should support him. I think the fire drill story was such a great example of this. What about that story stands out the most to you with respect to this very tricky idea of choice and control?
1: Um, what stands out to me about that the most is the way Marrakesh was willing to support something that represents a risk. And that that is really hard for providers to do sometimes, but they did it thoughtfully. They did it while keeping what matters most to Kenny in the center of the decisions they were making. Um, but it also occurs to me that Kenny is able and he's willing to push back on things that don't make sense to him. And um, if they don't help if those decisions don't help him make, have a life that represents that balance as he sees it, he's going to push back. But not everyone is Kenny. So our job, if we are in a role of service provision, is to really think about every person individually, including people who maybe don't tell us with their words what matters most to them, because we need to ensure that the decisions we make on their behalf then reflect that balance. That's not an easy thing, but it's a very necessary thing.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, one of the other key themes that I heard in some of Kenny's stories, and I know is another common theme for HCBS, is community inclusion. You know, Kenny wants to be able to participate in his community equitably, the same way that you and I might. But to do that, Kenny does need some support. So for example, Kenny commutes to his job, and he needs support with transportation to this job. I know you've heard that story before, but When you think about community inclusion and that story, what do you think about? So the
1: bus story is a really good example of how it's not about having something separate or special for Kenny. He's very sensitive to the fact that he wants to be living a normal life where he's not singled out, Um, but it's rather about making sure that public transportation is accessible to everyone, not just him. Um, So if Kenny's able to change his job in the future, um, like he's looking, you know, like he wants to do, um, this of course is gonna impact uh, those supports supports that he needs to be included in the community.
0: And I imagine that having him have those skills to be able to use public transportation as opposed to having sort of a special system will only help him make any of those transitions more successfully.
1: Absolutely. And it doesn't just help Kenny, it helps everyone. So, you know, having systems be more inclusive is not just about Kenny, it's about everyone in that community.
0: Definitely. The last thing about community inclusion that I want to get your reaction to is this idea of meaningful inclusion. So one term that I've seen a lot is this concept of meaningful day services. um, And those are services that focus on developing, maintaining or building skills that people need to be independent. A big part of those conversations uh, are focused on competitive integrated employment. And Kenny, like many of us, has a lot to say about his job and his goals for something a little bit different. So can you talk about that and how meaningful community inclusion can be so impactful when it's done right?
1: Absolutely. You know, with Kenny, I'm not sure how many jobs he's had in his life. um, But sometimes when people are using services and supports, We tend to approach employment as one job, one time. Um, So there's not a lot of pressure to look at other options. Kenny's also had a a change in the nature of his job, Um, and I think that's in part due to COVID. But I think it's important to Kenny that he has the opportunity to explore how to make other changes to employment um, so that it can be more meaningful to him. He's not really liking what he's doing right now. Um, and I think when we talk about meaningful services for people, we often think that as long as people are out and they're busy or as long as they're employed, that's enough. Um, but it's not, if it's not connected to the things that people care about the most, the things I say that the stuff that's important to them sits on their heart. So it keeps them happy, comforted, satisfied, fulfilled, uniquely who they are. Um, so if it's not connected to that, then it's not enough. And, um, it's, it's one thing to be on an outing, but if it's still not connected to what they care about, it's just filling up their time.
0: I think that's so true. You know, Looking back over everything we've heard today and everything you've touched on, I think Kenny has made an open and closed case for person-centered services, respecting choice and control, and facilitating supports for both equitable and meaningful inclusion in communities. But we both know it's not so black and white. You know, many home and community-based service providers really struggle to support these person-centered practices. Why do you think that is? Well, because we can get trapped into focusing
1: on health and safety, um, particularly when we're not taking into account the things that matter most to the person. So if we focus all of our energies on bubble wrapping that person against all harm, um, you know, they're going to be safe. They're going to be safe from harm, but their lives are not going to have quality. They're, they're likely not to have purpose or meaning. So if people get everything they want without understanding the consequences of choices without boundaries, they can be set up. To be hurt, and that's hard for providers to, to balance that. So people can be healthy and safe, as we said, but they also can be miserable at the same time and that's unacceptable, but it's not an easy thing to, to negotiate that. Um, some of this comes down to attitudes of providers and even to an extent, more generally, attitudes of society. So. We see that there's a a medical model of disability which really treated people with disabilities as people who needed to be fixed or as objects of charity. Um, And that has a lasting impact on the perceptions of, the rights of, the capabilities of people with disabilities um, by the non-disabled majority. We also see a lot of examples of paternalism or people who provide services thinking maybe that they know what's best for someone. Often that comes from a good place, but it's misguided. So. They don't respect the independence of the person or the autonomy of the people who use their services and supports. And sometimes we see staff who maybe haven't been trained to know how to listen for what's important to people so that they can honor those things when they're supporting people to make choices and make decisions in their lives.
0: Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, people are often unaware of these attitudes. They're often more implicit or internal than they are explicit or, or conscious. Um, and that makes it really hard to address because you're you're not even aware of those subtle beliefs that you have of thinking of this person as maybe not as capable. Um, so I've also heard you talk about compliance pressure and positive pressure for providers of home and community-based services and how sometimes the regulations or the policies that exist are a huge barrier to delivering person-centered services.
1: Yeah, you know, we see that very often with people um, that we work with, and Kenny had some great examples, and Marrakesh was able to find workarounds. Um, I'd like to say that was a simple thing, like they just thought of something new and tried it, but truly they tried things over and over, and I think sometimes people forget that this is not as simple as flipping a switch. It really is trial and error using judgment and creativity and keeping in mind at all times that we are in the world also to, to... protect people from harm. Um, But you know, thinking about uh, going to the State Department and asking them for a formal exemption, that's a big thing, and some providers may not even really know that they can do that. Um, Connecticut is is really progressive in that sense, and I'm, I'm not sure that that story would have had the same ending somewhere else, but there are pockets of good practice all over the U.S., um, and that's why it's important to have positive pressures, too, that we're doing things for the right reasons. It's not just the law, the compliance pressure, but it is because, we want Kenny to have a better life. And if you, if you extrapolate by that, you know, to all the people who are using services and supports, how do we individually help each of those people have a life that represents more of that balance from their perspective?
0: Yeah, I, I recently got to hear Allison Barkoff, the director of the Administration on Community Living, talk about choice and control. And something that she said about choice and control that I thought was really profound is this idea that choices are incremental. So for someone who has been living in one setting for a long time or who has been told that they don't have the skills to do something independently, you can't just ask them one time if they want to try something new and expect them to say yes, whether that's living arrangements or activities in the community you know people need to go and they need to see these other options and have that experience that's hands-on in exploring those choices she also said that person-centered planning is a constant conversation and i re- i really loved that and i think that's the centerpiece of true meaningful community inclusion
1: so that's a that's a such an important reminder um choice is not a one and done sort of thing. I know in my own life, I get to research when I have a choice to make. I get to ask people who care about me. Um, I get to look for examples of the options that align with those things that are important to me. So informed choice really requires understanding the options and testing the waters a little bit. And sometimes um, systems that serve people with disabilities are unaccustomed to doing that. So that's certainly part of the barriers where we see to exercise choice and control
0: absolutely all right so I want to end this conversation on a high note can we talk a little bit about some calls to action and um, what can our listeners do to help make the system more person-centered so I want to start with individual providers of home and community-based services what can they do to provide more person-centered services
1: well, they can make sure their staff gets trained in person-centered practices, and it's not just the people who provide the direct services, but everyone from the administrator to the janitor really should understand about the balance between important to and important for. In addition to that, there's lots of resources like the Learning Community for Person-Centered Practices, which you can reach at TLCPCP.com, or NCAPS or CQL, all of whom are working in uh, to further person-centered practices in the U.S.,
0: Great. All right, what about provider agencies and organizations? What can they do to change the system?
1: Um, You know, individual and systems levels, they have to work with one another. So, you know, never before in our history have we had aligned policy at the highest level with values-based practice on the direct one-to-one level in such a way that people can have balance in their life as they describe it for themselves. Um, So this is really a watershed moment for people with disabilities and chronic conditions and the people who care about them. Um, At the highest level of our system, Leaders have participated in person-centered thinking trainer and training, and then they've used what they've learned to change expectations for how services and supports are developed and delivered, and that became the HCBS final rule. So now states have taken up the charge, and they're clearing obstacles to service and support provisions so that the people who are doing the work in the organizations can do it with confidence, and they, they can be in compliance at the same time they are doing the right thing.
0: So as you mentioned, not everyone is able to be as vocal about their goals and the things they want from their services as Kenny is. So what would you tell someone who receives services and maybe wants to have a conversation with their provider about some changes to those services? How should they get that conversation started? Um,
1: one thing that comes to mind is that uh, the Learning Community for Person-Centered Practices has a template for something we call a one-page description, which is it's a warm introduction to a person, and it is just one page. Um, it's a good, simple first step to a person-centered introduction, and it's a way to help people who may be providing services and supports get to know a person and kind of lean into them. It always includes what we like and admire about the person, so it's strength-based and its approach. And in addition. To that, it tells us what's important to the person, what's that stuff that sits on their heart. And it tells us about the supports they need to be happy, healthy, and safe. So it describes for us the balance. And it does that in a very brief summary. Um, and for resources like that, you can check out that tlcpcp.com website I mentioned, um, and also Roars Facebook page, where they'll be sharing additional resources from a person-centered
0: perspective. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for talking with me today and for interviewing Kenny and Heather. This was such an insightful discussion. I feel like I learned so much. And I think it's really great to hear that person-centered practices are possible with the right supports.
1: Thanks so much for letting me come and share something I'm really passionate about.
0: Special thanks to my colleague and podcast guru, Nevada Tanetti, and thanks also to our team at the Center for Rehabilitation Outcomes Research for their feedback on this project. If you liked this podcast or have feedback for us on what you want to hear next, head to our website at sralab.org slash research slash labs slash C-R-O-R, or check us out on Facebook by searching for at Rehab Outcomes.